0: Welcome to Fast Company Digest, essential stories from tech, design, impact, and work life narrated by NOAA App. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor and host of the New Way We Work podcast, Kathleen Davis. Here are this week's stories. First, it's 15 years after the 2008 financial crisis and the four too-big-to-fail banks are reporting remarkable profits while mid-size and smaller banks are mostly still struggling. Writer Jim Sirwicki explains how this reflects the new reality in the banking industry where rising interest rates are helping the bottom line of big banks while causing trouble for smaller institutions.
1: Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at NewsoverAudio.com. For NOAA, this is Sam Scholl reading from Fast Company. We're on the 23rd of October, 2023. James Terwicky writes, Too big to fail? Fifteen years after the financial crisis, the megabanks are bigger than ever. The rich get richer. That's the simple takeaway from this week's third quarter earnings reports from the country's megabanks. While cities saw only a mild year-over-year bump in profits, Wells Fargo's profits rose by 61 percent, Bank of America's by 20 percent, and J.P. Morgan Chase's by 35 percent. Collectively, the four too-big-to-fail banks earned a remarkable $30.4 billion in the quarter. The results from so-called regional banks, by contrast, have been less robust, while m and Bank saw its profits rise by 7 percent. Both U.S. Corp. and Citizens Financial reported steep profit declines, and PNC Financial announced it was laying off 4% of its workforce after profits and revenue both dropped in the most recent quarter. The fact that the megabanks are thriving, while midsize and smaller banks are mostly still struggling, is no coincidence. Instead, it reflects the new reality in the banking industry, which is that rising interest rates, which historically have been good for banks generally, are helping the bottom line of big banks, while causing trouble for smaller institutions. Things are certainly better for regional banks than they were this spring, when Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic all failed. That sparked fears about regional banks as a whole, and led to an outflow of deposits, most of which ended up going to big banks. Today, deposits have for the most part been stabilized, and there's less anxiety about the possibility of banks going under, but that's come at a serious cost. Regional banks have had to boost the interest rates they pay on deposits in order to keep customers, which, in turn, has shrunk their net interest margin, the difference between the rate they can borrow at and the rate they lend at. The reason rising interest rates have historically been good for banks is that they've usually been able to increase the rate they charge for loans by significantly more than they've had to increase the rate they pay on deposits. But for many regional banks, that's no longer true. It's become much easier for customers to move money from one institution to another, which increases competition for deposits. And if customers get anxious about the stability of a bank, they're far more likely to pull their deposits than they once were. To keep them, you have to raise interest rates and cut fees, both of which put a dent in profits. These issues are much less of a problem for megabanks. While they do have to be concerned about price competition and have boosted interest rates on deposits, their too-big-to-fail status means that their customers are not really concerned about the possibility that they might go under. So, they can pay lower interest rates on deposits and charge higher fees than smaller banks do, which is why even as their deposits have dropped, their net interest income has been rising, not falling. What we have, then, is a system in which the advantages of size are including the implicit guarantee that the government won't let megabanks fail, only increasing. And that raises an obvious question. Are we inevitably going to see a new big wave of consolidation in banking with banks trying to get big enough to reap the same benefits Citi, Wells, Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase enjoy? At the very least it would not be surprising. The US is after all unusual in the developed world because Even after waves of bank mergers, we still have so many banks, more than 4,000 at last count. That's the legacy of a long history of distrust of centralized financial power, which led to strict rules on where banks could operate, including many state laws that prohibited out-of-state banks from opening branches. U.S. banking regulations are now far friendlier to interstate banking and bank mergers which is why the total number of banks has fallen by roughly half since 2000. But unlike a country like Canada, where there are only 80 banks total and 5 banks dominate the system, in the U.S., small and mid-sized banks still play a fundamental role in the banking system. Collectively, they have more than half of all bank deposits in the U.S. It may be that our more decentralized, diversified banking system is preferable, More regional institutions may have specific knowledge of local economies that big banks don't, and may therefore be more willing to take risks on loans to businesses that big banks would dismiss. But what 2023 has made clear is that the status quo, a banking system divided between a small number of too-big-to-fail banks, and then a lot of small and mid-sized banks trying, futilely, to compete with them, isn't really sustainable in the long term. Ultimately, then, policymakers need to decide if the U.S. wants small and mid-sized banks to stay healthy and to be able to compete, there may need to be serious policy changes, like, say, guaranteeing all deposits at smaller banks, the way they're effectively guaranteed at the too-big-to-fail banks. Otherwise, it seems inevitable that big banks will keep getting bigger while smaller banks merge in order to try to keep up. You were listening to Fast Company, where James Sirwicky writes, Too-big-to-fail? Fifteen years after the financial crisis, the mega banks are bigger than ever. This article was published on the 23rd of October and was read by Sam Scholl for NOAA.
0: And next, a body language expert explains the silent language of leaders. Her advice will help you combine nonverbal communication skills to be truthful, authentic, and present. <laughs>
2: you're listening to fast company where on the 23rd of october 2023 linda clemens ceo of sisterpreneur and body language expert writes this is how to decode the silent language of leaders the words you say as a leader are actually a pretty small part of the story words form only about 20 percent of the information people get from you and some research shows it's as little as 7%. The rest is a combination of factors, some of the most important being body language, tone, authenticity and actions. Nonverbal skills like body language can be a powerful asset when you want to build loyalty, maximise retention and create a workforce that feels empowered to make thoughtful contributions. I've experienced firsthand how body language can up your game during both public appearances and private company presentations, creating an impression that sticks and helps you achieve the buy-in you're seeking. Through my work as a body language expert for more than three decades, I found that the key to mastering the silent language of a great leader combines strong non-verbal communication skills with the ability to communicate with your whole self. I call it the TAP method, being truthful, authentic, and present. TAP and effective body language are skills you can learn, even if you're not naturally a Rosalind Brewer, former CEO of Walgreens, or Mark Cuban, the multitasking entrepreneur. Here are seven of my top key tips for mastering the silent language of leaders. 1. Move with purpose. Less is more. Too much movement can give the impression that you're nervous or anxious. I like to do practice runs and record myself long enough so that I forget about the camera lens. I look for self-soothing movements like touching my hair, rubbing my arms or legs, shuffling my feet, or pacing, and then practice minimising them. That way I can better convey my message with conviction, move with intention and connect with what I want to communicate. 2. Remove barriers. Don't put up walls between you and the people you want to reach. In the office, if you're leading a meeting, make sure everyone has an unobstructed view of you. Stand if you need to. During a presentation, I like to move out from behind the desk or podium, bringing me physically closer, but not too close, to my audience. It helps me speak from my heart, and I don't feel the need to hide behind anything. 3. Watch your posture. Stand with your shoulders and head held high and the trunk of your body open to show your power core. I refer to this as my empowerment posture because science shows that it stimulates my brain to release neurotransmitters that bolster confidence. Positive feelings often follow the right kind of physicality. Four. TAME AND TRAIN YOUR TONE Speak in a lower register, at a natural pace, which presents an air of authority. I find that my tone is effective and welcoming when I do an audio recording of myself during a meeting or presentation. I listen back to the quality of my voice, not the words. If I notice I'm so loud that I come across as overbearing, or my voice is too soft to rally the troops or if the pitch of my tone significantly increases and sounds anxious, I reset and adjust accordingly. 5. Show your passion. I've learned that people respond positively when my body language is telling them I care about what I'm saying. I'm committed to speaking and presenting without notes, but it may take some people a lot of practice to get there if speaking doesn't come naturally to them. Rehearsing actually frees me up in the long run because I've thought my talking points through and can focus on them and not my nerves. 6. Balance power and warmth. Communication is a two-way street. Find the equilibrium between projecting leadership qualities like clarity and strength and using empathy to know what others are feeling so you can respond effectively. I've always believed that empathy, intuition, and emotional intelligence are essential ingredients in the mix of nonverbal communication in order to be a leader who people respect and admire. I make a point to pay full attention to people to gain a better understanding of where they're coming from. It empowers me to be a strong leader and gives me the grace and presence to command a room without taking up all the air in it. 7. Consider the context. Assessing context in, for example, a critical meeting with my C-suite team is an essential part of accurately interpreting what's going on. I note the tone and volume of others, paralinguistics, the spatial arrangement, proxemics, and artifacts, nearby objects and images. If everyone is around the conference table except for one person sitting by themselves, I make a point to check in with them and see if everything's all right. Were there no more open seats at the table, or were they checked out instead of giving me their full attention? And here's a bonus tip. Nonverbal communication includes your actions. I've learned that if you want to mentor, support and advocate for your employees, it's best to lead from behind. I look for openings where I can step back and let my team step up. By giving them more opportunities for growth... I'm able to earn the loyalty I seek from them. I remain aware of what my physical movements convey to my team when I do a handoff. If I let an employee take the helm in a meeting, for instance, I stand behind them and am careful not to hover. That tells them I'm there to support them and have their backs if they need it. Over time, and through consistent practice today, I've been able to increase my effectiveness as a leader by raising my awareness of what I and my colleagues, employees and team members, and peers are communicating beyond words. As I become more finely attuned to how my body language and overall non-verbal communication was being received by others, by how they responded, I learn to adjust my communication style in ways that are beneficial to myself, to those I communicate with, and to the business I lead. You are listening to Fast Company, where Linda Clemens writes, This is how to decode the silent language of leaders. This article was published on the 23rd of October, 2023, and was read by Jane Wing for Noah.